I'd like to suggest among so many verses that I could talk about in 1 Corinthians, a theme verse, turn all the way to the last chapter. Let me point it out to you because I think it's going to help us as we move through the book. It's 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, and it says these simple words, but they're very profound. 16, 14. It says, let all that you do be done in love, or do everything in love. Now, if you turn back to chapter 1, let me uh, highlight a word that you've all heard before. It's the word agape, or agape. That's the word for love uh, many times in the scriptures. And the word agape or agape is a word that means this. It means affection or benevolence. It includes the idea of community affection expressed at the love feast, which we'll see in chapter 11, the ancient potluck that the church shared in. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 11. But it speaks namely, agape does, of goodwill. Love means wanting the best for someone. You might want to write that down. Love, simply put, defined, means wanting the best for someone. That's what God wants for you. That's what we want for you is the best. We want a life that's not simply uh, one that's compromised, one that's just swimming in mediocrity. We want the best. Do you want that? We got one shot on this planet, folks. I want to live the best life I can live for the glory of God of my Savior, and I want to share the best with others. He is the best. There's nothing that even comes close. When we experience life outside of Christ, then we come to know the one who describes himself as love. We find out what life's all about. I think we're all longing for love, really, in one way or another. And a lot of us with our backgrounds, you know, we have our bruises. We have our potholes that we've hit along the way. We all come from some measure of dysfunction. We all desire to be loved well. But, you know, the ones that have been trying to love us have had their share of bumps and bruises. So they carry those bumps and bruises into their lives. And then some of that gets passed on to us. And the Corinthian church was living in such a time and such a situation much like us. Somebody once said that you could call the book of 1 Corinthians the book of First Californians. (laughs) But maybe more specifically, we could call this book First Coronians. Because the book is very contemporary to our time. Let me just give you some highlights of what's going to happen. And let me share with you that even though our theme verse is going to be 1 Corinthians 16, 13, do everything in love, Paul's letter to the Corinthian believers is largely corrective. He will spend many, many chapters after this initial call into gracious you know, uh, fellowship and reminding them of who they are in Christ. The most, most of the majority of the letter that we're going to study now from here on out is going to be corrective, which shows you something about love. Love doesn't just tell you what you want to hear. Love wants the best for you and me, and God is willing to share hard truth with us so that we can be the best that he's called us to be. And so I want you to take note of that, that as we move through the letter, remember Paul is going to highlight that we should do everything in love, that God is love, and yet he's going to share a lot of hard truth with the Corinthian believers, which tells us that love is not just simply looking over and not telling somebody what they need to hear. Love and truth do do go together. 
Here's the subjects that we're going to be dealing with. In chapter 1, divisions in the church. Chapter 2, the natural man and the spiritual man. Chapter 3, we'll look at carnal Christians. Chapter 4, we'll look at stewardship. Chapter 5, we'll look at sexual sin in the church. And Paul says there's a guy that needs to be kicked out of the church. In chapter 6, Christians are taking one another to court. Paul says, how can you do that? In chapter, seven, uh, chapter 6, we'll deal with Christian freedom in some gray areas. That's also chapter 8 and chapter 10. In chapter 7, we'll deal with marriage and divorce and singleness in the church. In chapter 8, we'll deal with how to not stumble a brother or sister. In chapter 9, we're going to talk about gospel ministry and the call to the fields that are white unto harvest. That's also chapter 9. In chapter 10, we're going to talk about how to overcome temptation and how to learn from the example of Israel in the Old Testament. In chapter 11, we're going to deal with the Lord's Supper. And some people are sick and dying because of sin and what they do at the love feast. Chapters 12 through 14 will deal with spiritual gifts, but in chapter 13 we'll deal with the famous love chapter. We'll see what love is, what it does, how it responds to life and difficulty. In chapter 15, we'll get the most comprehensive chapter in all the scriptures on the resurrection. Paul will tell us that the resurrection is real, that we are going to rise. In chapter 16, we're going to look at the subject of Christian giving. Is that enough? I'd say that's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? So 1 Corinthians, which we're going to be in for about a, uh, probably about 10 years, I'd say. <laughs> Something like that. I mean, we did the book of James five chapters in five months. What's it going to take to do 1 Corinthians? It's going to be over a year. So anyway, that's what we have to look forward to. But we have an amazing journey ahead of us. An amazing journey. I'm really excited for this book. Let me tell you about the author and the date of the book. The author of the book is the Apostle Paul. He wrote some 13 New Testament books. He was once Saul who became Paul. I think most of you are familiar with him. He wrote the book in about A.D. 54 or 55. That's about 20 years after the events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So within a close window of the events. And scholars believe that he founded the church at Corinth around A.D. 50. And they they kind of zero in on the spring of A.D. 50 because of some other evidences that we have. So that'll give you some dates. Paul spent about a year and a half in the Corinthian church, uh, establishing the Corinthian church. And the story is told in the book of Acts, chapter 18. Would you move there? Just a few pages back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 18. Here's the story of the planting of the, the Corinthian congregation. Acts 18, look at verse 1. It says, in these things, after these things, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, Paul had been in Athens and he saw a city, Athens, Greece, swimming in idolatry. They had some 3,000 altars lining the agora or the marketplace. And when Paul walked through the city, he was provoked. He was jealous for the God of the Bible. Let me just say right here that some of you, when you hear the description of Athens, Greece, and you hear the description of Corinth, you may be saying, why would Paul even bother? Some casual observer might say to Paul, coming in, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, isn't there enough gods in this city? Isn't 3,000 gods enough plus an altar to an unknown God just in case we missed one? What do we need, Paul, this Jewish convert to Christianity coming into our city or coming into Corinth where there's all kinds of gods and goddesses and idolatry going on? Because there is a singular truth, brothers and sisters. 
There is a true God amidst all the lies, all the deceptions, all the false gods, all the messages that we hear, and the people in places like this need to hear with clarity the hope of a true God. Not a God that needs to be appeased that's much like us. You know, the gods and goddesses of the, the Greek and Roman pantheons fought with each other. They needed to be appeased. They killed each other. All of that. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, I'm not like you, but I love you. And I made you. And I want you to know me. And so into Corinth goes Paul. He found a certain Jew, Acts 18, 2, named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy, that's one of my favorite places, with his wife. i got to go there someday. I haven't been there. Priscilla, because Claudia had commanded, Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome, some sort of persecution, he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working uh, for, by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue. They found uh, in Corinth, by the way, a old um, uh, marble piece from a synagogue that dates to about this time, and it's called the Synagogue of the Hebrews. If you Google Corinth and look for artifacts from Corinth, they actually dug this up in archaeology, and they have it today. And so he went into the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself. He moved away from the tent making completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean for now on I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, a Gentile here, whose house was next to the synagogue. Talk about a strategic location. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision. Now Paul you know, the synagogue leader gets saved and Paul has had some rough experiences to date and Paul might have gone to bed that night thinking, this is cool. Crispus has gotten saved. His family has gotten saved. Paul got a chance to baptize this man. But Paul went to bed that night and thought, you know what? This is probably going to be a rough season ahead because the Jewish people are not going to like that the synagogue leader has now become a believer like me, Paul might say. And the Lord said to Paul in the night, verse 9, by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, which indicates to me that Paul was afraid. And I want to park here for a second and say to you that there's times when we're living as Christians, when we're trying to do the right thing, we're trying to take the right stands, we're trying to share the gospel, we're trying to stand on God's truth, that we can be rattled. We can be afraid. Paul was not superhuman. He didn't have an S on his chest underneath his robe in the first century. He was afraid. He went to bed that night and he was probably, his prayer was probably something like this. Lord, even though I love serving you and I love you, I don't like being the target for people. I don't want to get beat up again. I'm tired. I'm poured out. And the Lord appeared to him and said, don't be afraid any longer. Go on speaking, don't be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. 
And he, Paul, settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or vicious, a vicious crime, uh, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the bema, or the judgment seat. And they, took, they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. He replaced Crispus, who got saved, right? And began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. I'm sure uh, Sosthenes was concerned, but Gallio was like, ah, oh, let him fight it out, whatever. And so let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 1. Some of you have already taken note that when Paul opens 1 Corinthians, he describes himself as apostle of Jesus Christ, and he writes the letter with a man named who? Sosthenes, our brother. He may have been a secretary for Paul or in some way is sending his greetings with Paul, which tells you that two synagogue leaders got saved. Crispus got saved, and so did Sosthenes. And I'm sure much to the chagrin of those who were in the city and didn't want anybody to hear the message of Christ and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Sometimes we think Certain people will never be saved. There's no way that God could reach that individual. I got news for you. God can reach anybody, anytime, anywhere, any way he wants. We learned that from the book of Jonah. <laughs> Where can I go from your spirit, O oh Lord? You can't go anywhere. He rules the universe. Now, we are going to study a book that it was swimming in what I would call a corrupt culture. Let me give you a little background on, first, on uh, the Corinthian culture. Paul was enter entering a city that was swimming in affluence and immorality. This was a beautiful and proud city rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 46 BC. It was at this point a Roman colony, even though a very much Hellenized or Greek culture, it was a Roman colony intended to raise the banner of Rome and all that Rome stood for. It was geographically located in Greece, but culturally, it was Roman. They were established to foster the majesty of Rome, the culture of Rome, its religion, and its values. Some considered Corinth the most dazzling of modern Greek cities of the time. Many ancient uh, structures that have been seen today or built up, uh, dug up today one ancient writer, though, described the nauseating behavior of the, the rich in the city and the misery of the poor at Corinth as a reason for not wanting to visit it. Corinth has been uh, described as maybe something like an ancient Las Vegas. Very beautiful, lots of glamour, lots of building, lots of lights, but lots of corruption. The main thing that drew a lot of people through this navy town was an isthmus that was there. It was located 45 to 50 miles west of Athens, and it had an isthmus, which was an ancient roller for ships. Instead of making the 250-mile journey, which was dangerous around the tip uh, there of southern Greece, what you could do is you could allow your small ship to pass on something like a conveyor belt, which was called an isthmus. 
And they had slaves of the time, and they would pull the vessel through. And you can look at pictures of this today, and it would save you that dangerous journey uh, around the tip. And what happened was, uh, Corinth was a city that was sitting on an Acropolis. Literally, it means a high city. And so if you allowed your ship to go over this, uh, this conveyor belt in, in the ancient time, you would pass right by the city of Corinth. And up on the top of the hill was the shining city with all these majestic buildings and all that was there. A great lighthouse. And Poseidon, the Roman god uh, Neptune, guided ships into the harbors. The place was filled with agora, markets, warehouses, wharves with goods from around the empire, spices from India, silk from China, linen from Tarsus, marble from Turkey, Greece and North Africa, timber from Italy. It was a city swimming with activity. In fact, the population at this time was about 500,000 people that lived in this navy town. So you can imagine, many, many people, uh, many things going on. And one of the things that would happen every two years was something called the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games. And people would show up here. There would be athletes. There would be slaves running around town. There would be all these professional seamen and so forth. And they would bet on the Isthmian Games. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul would use an image. He says, don't you know that all who run in a race don't, all don't win the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Well, that's taken from the idea of the games. So Paul loved to use athletic metaphors in the race of the Christian life. And this is all the background of Corinth. It was a hotbed of activity. It had all these incredible attractions there and things to see. The Greeks had two sayings. They said, let him who sails around Malaya forget his home, that difficult journey, and let him who sails around Malaya first make his will. So it was much easier to go through this conveyor belt in the ancient world or this isthmus. And so immorality was rampant. One of the things I can tell you about the city of much that I could say of all these uh, things that they've discovered in ancient temples is the main prominent edifice on the Acropolis was the temple of Aphrodite. Her Roman name is Venus. She was the Greek goddess of love or the goddess of sex. They say some 1,000 priestesses who were her religious prostitutes lived and worked there. And as the sun would set in Corinth, they would go out from the temple of Venus or the temple of Aphrodite, and they would sell their wares to those who were in the city. It was a very immoral place. It was almost like an ancient Bourbon Street. If you've ever been to New Orleans and walked down Bourbon Street, it was that kind of feel. It got so bad in Corinth that to Corinthianize, in quotes, meant to practice harlotry. If you were considered a Corinthian girl, you were considered a prostitute. If you were known as a Corinthian, you were considered a party animal. One writer says Corinth was the vanity fair of the ancient world. Sexual immorality was rampant. Homosexuality was rampant. The city was known for this. And so Paul went into the city, and of course he began to preach the gospel, and he planted a church, and he stayed there a year and a half teaching these people. They were used to seeing things of major wealth, Strabo attributes the city's wealth to the fortune of being the master of two harbors with the isthmus. The culture was highly materialistic and highly egocentric. It was hard for the church not to embrace the spirit of the age. Corinth also derived much of its wealth from its many pagan temples and shrines, where homage was paid to foreign as well as civic deities like 
Isis, Serapis, Astarte, Artemis, Apollo, Hermes, Heracles, Athena, and Poseidon. It even had a famous temple dedicated to Asclepius, the so-called god of healing. People would go there. They would flock to this temple seeking healing of their physical infirmities. And they would move into this area of Corinth. All kinds of immorality going on, betting on the Isthmian games, people swarming in great numbers to this ancient Las Vegas. And there's where Paul plants a church. You might be thinking, Paul, what are you thinking? Why would you go there? Why not go to a place like Idaho? (laughs) Where the values are more conservative and it would seem that if you walked into a coffee shop, undoubtedly you would meet another Christian. But it was, it's in places like this that Paul saw a great need where people needed to hear about freedom and hope in Jesus, where they could be told that the, the false gods of the Greek and Roman pantheon cannot deliver, cannot save, and cannot give you freedom. Where you may have been educated in Greek and Roman philosophy, but in the end you will end up bankrupt and empty because they can't lead you to the light of the true and living God. What drove Paul is compassion. And that's what should drive our evangelism. Some people look intimidating to talk to, no doubt. They seem to be maybe on the opposite side of the shore and everything that we know and we believe. But at one point, wasn't that you? Wasn't that me? Wasn't that, you know, somebody took a risk to talk to you when you were without Christ and without hope in your world? Amen? And so as we move through Corona, and Corona is not like ancient Corinth, of course, but there are some parallels. We can think of California as having some parallels. The need is great. And a community of hope was established in Corinth, and they were supposed to be a light. Think about how it works. Paul was called and touched by the Lord. He called Paul to be a light to Corinth so that Corinth could be a light to their own community. This is the way it works. God commissions someone to share the gospel. We hear the gospel. We get changed. And then we're supposed to be a light to those who are around us. It doesn't just stop with us. It's not just about us getting saved and then coming into a church building a couple hours on a Sunday. It's about us preaching the hope and the transforming light of Christ. We are now at verse 1. Wow. I thought I was going to get through nine verses. I don't know what's going to happen, but that's all right. Paul called, 1 Corinthians 1.1, as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our, brothers, our brother. The call came to Paul, then through Paul to the Corinthians. The word called there is an interesting word. It's kletos in Greek. It means to be invited And appointed. When God called you, He invited you to be in fellowship with Him and He appointed you to something. In fact, when we get later in this book, we're going to find that each one of us has a spiritual gift to be part of the body to contribute to the glory of the head. You were invited to come to Christ into a relationship and then you were called to do something in that relationship to actually use your gifts to bless the body and to reach out to others. 
Paul's an apostle. That gives him authority. Literally a sent one. Apostolos in Greek. He's an apostle of Jesus. Not because he signed up for it, but because he was personally called by Jesus on the road to Damascus. It was a gracious calling. He calls himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, the least of the apostles. He said, I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. We must always remember that when Paul writes a letter, he was an enemy of the cause of Christ and he became its greatest spokesman. So no matter where you've been, what you've done, you can move from being an enemy of God to be, being one of God's greatest spokesmen. And when you do that, you can bring light and love to others. You can bring hope to others. You can bring hope to your friends. You can bring hope to maybe groups of people that you used to run with in the same circles of doing the same things. Maybe it was drugs. Maybe it was alcohol. Maybe it was a certain type of lifestyle, whatever it may be. Maybe money was your God. And you can tell people that there's hope. I think Paul says he's an apostle at the outset to establish authority that what he's about to say comes from the authoritative call that he received. And what we're about to hear when we read and study the word of God is authoritative to us. This is the Bible. This is God's word. Therefore, it has authority over us. If we come into the church on a Sunday morning, listening with that in mind, that this book has authority over me because it's breathed out by God, we will be the better for it. We cannot just dodge things that we don't like and brush them aside as much as I would like to do that personally at times because there's certain things that I've heard over the years in the word of God that cramp my lifestyle. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Anybody else? <laughs> yeah, there's things that you just hear and you're like, wow, that's inconvenient <laughs> to what I've been doing for the last decade. And then you have to make a decision. You have to say, does this book have authority over me? Or am I going to take authority over it? Does God have authority over me when he says something? Do I say, even though that hurts and that's inconvenient, I'm going to amend and adjust my life to that because that's God's will for me and God has authority over me? Or am I going to say, no, I'm not going to do it? Well, this is the problem with Corinth. The people had come into the church, but they were still trying to live like the world. And I think Paul writes this letter trying to alert them that if you do that, if you embrace the spirit of the age, please hear what I'm about to say, you will lose your influence. How many unbelievers are looking at the church wondering what actually makes us different and what's the major stumbling block to them when we act just like them? They say, I thought you were a Christian. I knew that place was filled with a bunch of hypocrites. But when we shine as lights in the world, when we're consistent, not perfect, but consistent, people, I think, garner some hope from that, that maybe they can change too. To the church of God, verse 2, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, same word that was used of Paul's call is used of their call. The church of God, which is at Corinth. Every church that is legit is a church of God. It's not a man-made organization. The church is not a man-made organization. The church is the church of God. The one who establishes the church is God. And Jesus, who is God, is head over the church. 
When you come to this place on a Sunday morning or anywhere else where the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up, where God's word is central, you will find a church that's legit and you will find a church that's been established by God. It's the church of God. That's what makes it important and powerful. The church is the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. At the center of the church is Jesus and the gospel, which we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. It's to everyone who has been, look, in every place, middle of the verse, saints by calling, who, with all who in every place call upon, that means to invoke the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You are saints by calling. God calls. Look at the graphic here. God calls to us, but then we must call to him. God gives us the message of the gospel. He calls typically through an individual, right? Through a preacher, through an evangelist. Maybe you picked up your Bible in a hotel room or something like that, and the word of God comes to you, and God calls through the gospel, And then the response that we have is to call upon the name of the Lord. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? They'll be saved. You must call. He calls you, and then you must invoke the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he's Lord. He is master. He is sovereign. He's the one we call to, not any old God, not some God or goddess in the Greek pantheon will do. To call upon the name of the Lord, says one writer, is not to invoke some shadowy unknown deity, but to commit oneself in trust to the one whose nature and character have been disclosed as worthy of trust. You are God's church at Corona. God is the founder of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I'll build my church. It's my church. I have to remember that. It's not my church. Sometimes I meet people and they'll talk to me in the community. Is that your church over there? (laughs) One time a little girl in the church some years ago said, Pastor Michael, are you the king of this church? (laughs) And I said, can you go get me a maple bar and bring me the remote control? I like you, little girl. (laughs) I said, no, I'm not the king of this church. Jesus is the king. She went, oh, okay. But I was tempted just for a moment to see what I could get with that title. King of the church. (laughs) That's a joke, by the way. The church, ecclesia in Greek, is the called out ones. Called out of the world and called to Christ. Called out of darkness to light. Called out of the world system to Jesus. Called out of the dominion of Satan to God. That's what's happened to me and I hope to you. I've been called out of the mess of my sin and called to the one who is my Savior and my Lord. Amen? He is good. Good to love someone like me when I was in my mess. It's with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. He's their Lord and ours. He's awesome. He's good. He sets us apart. He sanctifies us. Look at the word sanctified in verse 2. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's a word that means to be set apart. 
We are to be a holy community that have been set apart to serve God's purpose, not ours. To be sanctified, to become holy, is to be set apart for God's purpose, not yours. That's a tough one to overcome, whether you live in Corinth or Corona. Because it's drilled into our souls, really from the time we're little in this world, that we got to get our purpose done. No, 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 no. To be set apart unto God means that you want to get his will done. Some years ago, a young boy whose father was a pastor was put in jail for stealing some merchandise from a department store. His father happened to be playing golf with some of the church leaders at the time and received a call while on the golf course to come down to the jail to get his son out. Thinking it was a mistake, the pastor took the other men with him to the police station where embarrassment abounded. The deepest impression of the incident left on the boy's mind was made by the repeated reminders he received from those men that day and from many others afterward about who his father was. Having a father like yours, they said, how could you do what you have done? As humiliating and painful as that experience was, the boy knew that he was still his father's son. He had not acted like the son of his father, should have acted but he was still a son. As Christians, one of the strongest rebukes we can have when we sin is to be reminded who our Father is. To reminded, be reminded that we were set apart for his sovereign purposes, that he loved us and he wants to change us and he doesn't stop loving us when we fall on our face, but he wants to use us. Paul says, grace and peace, <clears throat> verse three, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you. You have to wonder why Paul did that because these, uh, these particular believers were often a pain to him, but he thanked God for them always. For the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. See grace and peace there? Those have been called the Siamese twins of the New Testament, but they celebrate God's comprehensive work in the life of the believer. Grace is the source of the Christian life and peace, says Edwards, is its consummation. The grace of God has flooded my life, and as a result of that, I have peace with God. Jesus Christ himself is my peace. Whatever you're going through right now, Jesus Christ is my peace. His grace opened the door to a beautiful shalom peace with my maker now. I'm not fighting him anymore. Some days it feels that way, right? But I'm in communion with my maker and Paul says, I give thanks to God, despite everything he's going to say to this church for who you've become in Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him. In all speech, the word is logos there in Greek, and all knowledge, the word is gnosis. Later in the book, we will find that the Corinthian church had many gifts. They had the gift of tongues in the congregation, but they had elevated that gift to an unhealthy place. Paul would say, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I've become useless if I have spiritual gifts, but I don't use them for the purpose of love and building others up. You can have insight into spiritual uh, knowledge. You can know all mysteries and all knowledge. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians 13, but you must have love. You've been enriched in every way. Can I park here for a second, Christian? How many ways in your life have you been enriched by your union with Jesus Christ? Just count the ways. Think about your spiritual gifts. 
Think about your life. Think about your relationships. Think about lives that you've been able to impact. Think about the fact that you're headed to heaven. Think about your daily communion with the Lord Jesus. You've been enriched in every way, haven't you? He became poor that you, 2 Corinthians 8 9, might become rich. And you and I have been enriched. I, I've been enriched in so many ways. I, I think if I started a sheet of paper, I'd be there for days. The ways that the Lord has touched my life and enriched me in speech and knowledge. I think the primary target here is spiritual gifts, but it goes well beyond that. Even as the testimony or witness or evidence concerning Christ was confirmed in you. This is a legal term that guarantees and settles a transaction. You could say, my salvation in Christ is settled. I am signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. Yeah. I had to get a song in there at some point. So that you, Corinthians, are not lacking in any gift. You don't fall short in any grace gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when the perfect comes, that which is in part will be done away with. At one point, tongues will pass away. These gifts of prophecy and knowledge will cease because then we will be with him. How? Face to face. Now I know in part. I prophesy in part. But when that time comes, man, I will know even as I am known. And Paul's saying, look, Corinthians, even though you've got the gifts, make sure you look forward to the return of the giver because he's coming And when he comes, we'll put aside all these gifts. I know you're gifted in these things, but we're going to put them aside because we're going to be in his very presence. And this one who loves you, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's coming again, his second coming is going to happen. He will confirm you to the end. He who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ. That's the second coming. That's the day of the Lord. That's when he rescues and pours his wrath on an unbelieving world. He will not give up on you. If he won't give up on the Corinthian church, he won't give up on the Coronians either. Are you grateful? Because there's days when I want to give up on myself. Anybody? There's days I look in the mirror. There's days when... I go, Lord, how long is this going to be a struggle? Can you really love me with the way sometimes I carry on or I think? He will confirm you, mark it in your Bible, to the end. How? Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes, some of you have been concerned, and it's a legitimate concern for anybody. We don't want to be ashamed at his coming, But if you are in Christ Jesus on that day, you will be blameless. Now, there's a lot of things that I could be blamed for over the years, even though I try to wiggle out of a lot of them, right? Especially when you're small. Did you do that? No, he did it. (laughs) She did it. Somebody else did it. It's not mine, (laughs) right? And we try to shift blame. We're blame shifters all the way back to the book of Genesis. The woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. Right? We even blame God. But on the day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes with probably millions of angels to 
light up a darkened sky. When he looks at you, if you're in Christ, you will be, get this, blameless. What? Huh? How could I be blameless? There's lots of things that I could be blamed for legitimately. Colossians 1.22 says, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from blame, free from accusation. You say, how could that be? Because Jesus Christ took the blame for you. He was treated as though he were a criminal, though he was completely innocent. He was treated on the cross as though he had sinned my sins though he had never sinned. Why would he do that? Why would he go to that cross and be blamed? How many of you could say, there's been a time in my life when it wasn't my fault and I took the blame. I stood in front of somebody and I said, it's my fault. If I would have done this different. Most of the time we're trying to get out of stuff, right? It's somebody else's fault. But Jesus stepped up and said, Father, I'm going to take the fault. I'm going to take the blame, though innocent. I'm going to stand in their stead. You might be thinking as we wrap up, well, how could this be? How can I know for sure that on that day I'll be blameless? Because look at verse 9. Because God is faithful. Faithful is God, you could render it. Through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because God is faithful. That's how you can know. Now we're going to have a time of communion and we're going to remember how faithful God is. When we come to the table and we take a piece of matzah, we're going to remember the pierced body of Jesus. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was wounded for my iniquity. When we take the cup, we're going to remember the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without spot, without blemish, that was shed for me that I could be blameless before my Father. We're going to remember fellowship. We were called into fellowship. That means into union and communion with our God. And before these elements go out to us, I just want to make sure that you know him that he is your Lord and Savior, that when he called, you called back. Of all that we could wrestle with about how salvation works, what theologians call the study of soteriology, how much is God, how much is man, you have a part to play. And however, I, I believe it's a small part of the pie that God does most of the work, but I think God does ask you to do something, and it's this simple. He asks you to repent of your sin and to call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You have to have a moment. I have to have a moment where I call back. He calls. I got to answer. With caller ID, we can see who's calling now. How many of you have landlines and nobody that you know ever calls you on your landline? Have you ever looked at your spouse and just said, why do we have a landline? <laughs> because all we do is ignore that phone. People call. We say, ah, that's nobody we want to talk to. And sometimes when people call on your cell phone, it's somebody that you know and love and you still don't want to talk to them. And that's a whole other issue. We have counseling set up for that. <laughs> when God calls, here's what he says. I want you to answer. 
I want you to pick up the phone. And for some of you, he's been calling you for years and you've been hitting the silent button. You've been ignoring the phone call. You've been saying, I'll get that later. I'll talk to him later. Because the implications have been too much for you because maybe it's too much to face. If I pick up the phone, he might say some hard things to me. But you know what? The first thing he's going to say to you is, I love you. That's why I'm calling you. If I didn't want you to be with me for all eternity, I wouldn't have bothered. I wouldn't have come down and died on that cross for you. But I love you. And I love you just the way you are right now. And I'm not going to leave you that way because I'm good. But I'm going to be more patient than probably anybody that you know. Oh, there's no doubt. And I'm going to wait. And I'm going to change you little by little. But you got to pick up the phone. And just say, Lord, since you're calling, I invite you in. Be my Lord, be my Savior, be my friend. Would you bow? If you haven't met Jesus, just simply cry out to him. Just something like this. Lord, thank you for calling me. Prayed if it's you. I'm not sure I know you yet, but I want to know you. I've come into this place today maybe a little confused and Maybe a little tired. But I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to take my blame and my punishment at that cross, to take your righteous justice. Thank you that you put your love on display at that cross. Thank you that Jesus took the blame for me. Thank you that you love me that much. Give me a new beginning in Christ. I I turn from my sin and I trust in him for my salvation. I I repent of any idolatry in my life, any things that I've elevated above you and I want to put you first. Thank you for calling me. Change me from the inside out. Lord, for the sweet saints here at Corona, the church of God at Corona, I thank you so much for them. I thank you for the partnership we have in the gospel, the light that this church is to this community and beyond. May you bless them as they come to your table. May you encourage them. May you refresh them. May you renew their faith. May you touch areas of their life where they need strength today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.